Aloha, my name is Maya Sutoro. I'm a peace educator and professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. I'm also the co-founder of three nonprofits, Seeds of Peace, the Institute for Climate and Peace, and Peace Studio. This is something new. With this podcast, I'm so pleased to bring you conversations with change makers and influencers from the front lines of our communities. I believe their voices will deepen our curiosity and conviction and help us to consider things we haven't considered before. They'll help us be innovative in our thinking. And although their opinions in no way represent the organizations where I work, I'm really excited to share them with you. I feel certain they'll help us refresh our gaze, revisit our assumptions, and take action in brave new ways. Today, we'll hear about a series of community source solutions and actions developed in one space that I know will be instructive and can be adapted for places like Hawaii and other places and can help us to grow our faith in the human capacity for change. Listeners, let me tell you a little bit about Liam Chin. For the last 20 years, he's worked locally and in more than a dozen countries, developing initiatives that advance self-determination and healing in communities fractured by violence and depression. Liam is currently a community safety and police reform consultant. He was appointed by the City of Oakland in 2020 to serve as co-chair of the Alternate Responses and Investments Advisory Board, part of the city's Reimagining Public Safety Task Force. Prior to this, he served as the founding executive director of Restore Oakland, the first restorative justice job training and community organizing center in the United States. For nearly a decade, he also served with the Asia Foundation, where he engaged in police reform work in several countries. One of his proudest achievements is leading a groundbreaking pilot program in the war-torn country of Timor-Leste, where he established a diverse coalition, one that shifts policies and resources away from militarized policing and toward a nationwide community-led restorative justice system that has been replicated in other countries. Welcome, Liam. First, tell us the story of the water and earth that has helped to shape you. Thank you, Maya. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I was raised in a Native American community on the western edge of Alaska, in a community that has suffered immensely from the legacy of colonialism. The poverty, cultural dislocation, and community violence that exists in the community I grew up in, along with having parents that were dedicated to social justice, really shaped my lived experience and sort of brought me to this unusual career, a career that has taken me around the world. What are some of the cross-cultural lessons that you brought back from around the world and have put to use in the United States? Um, I've been humbled um, by the opportunity to observe in countries around the world, and in particular, uh, a diversity of communities, how people actually solve problems. And also recognizing that despite the fact that, sure, things are quite different given local context, ultimately, as human beings, we all really do face a lot of the same problems. So for me, it was important to not only come back to the United States to help to contribute to solving some of the intractable problems that continue to exist here, but also to potentially test out whether some of the lessons and ideas that I have had the unique opportunity to observe and be a part of around the world, were they actually relevant? Would they potentially work here in the US? Let's talk about Oakland for a second. Oakland's long been a center for social justice work. Can you tell us a little bit more about how 
the work on reimagining policing and public safety came to be a part of Oakland's charge? Yeah, so in the wake of George Floyd's death, the city of Oakland passed legislation to form a task force that had the specific mandate to lay out in detail what it would look like to reduce the police budget by 50% and redirect that money into alternatives to policing and investments in root causes of crime and violence. So this was a really unique uh, opportunity uh, that came in the uh, wake of the tragedy of George Floyd that brought together a wide diversity of people from across Oakland, people that represented a number of different professional backgrounds as well as lived experience, um, including formerly incarcerated folks and people that have experienced police brutality on a day-to-day basis. I'm um, pleased to learn that so many folks stepped up and were willing to do the uncomfortable work of participating in that process of change. Um, What was the experience like for you and what was uh, perhaps most surprising or inspiring about it? You know, I think what was most surprising were just the amount of common sense and brilliant solutions that are out there to address the ongoing public safety challenges that we've seen. Whether it's how to deal with people having mental health crises, homelessness, people in particular, whether it's how to deal with traffic enforcement and a whole host of other issues. Just the, just the number of solutions that, that were brought to the table by community members, which as I mentioned, had a diversity of backgrounds from criminal justice reform experts to mental health professionals to traffic enforcement experts to just moms from the community who said, you know, we've experienced a lot of pain and anguish and we want to help to address some of these problems that that seem to just just never go away. So this was a task force to reimagine public safety and policing. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between reimagination and reform? I think that's such a key question. And, and, and I think it can be answered with the question is, do we want to continue to make tweaks to police policies in the hopes that we're going to produce a drastically different outcome, which, by the way, we've been doing for decades. The idea of more training and continued police reform is not new. You can literally go back to the 1960s and look at the sort of dialogue and, and narrative that was happening at that time in response to widespread police brutality. And it's almost like you could cut and paste it to what we're hearing today. What I like to point out is that in Minneapolis, where George Floyd was murdered, a couple of years before that, there was another murder of an African-American man that in the wake of it, new reforms were passed that, for example, required an officer to intervene if he saw one of his fellow officers using excessive force. But none of these things made a difference in saving George Floyd's life. And we see that over and over again. So when we think about reimagining, in contrast, we think about what would it look like to address the root causes of crime and violence? What would it look like to not talk about reforming police, but to talk about actually redefining the role that police play in society and to really think about what does safety really mean? Where, what really brings safety? Is it more policing? Do we know of any community in the United States where more policing resulted in more safety, more opportunity, 
and a more thriving and healthy community? I personally can't think of one. So I think it, it comes down to this, this sort of simple, uh, simple quote that I heard someone say recently, which is, the safest communities are not the ones with the most police, they're the ones with the most resources. And I can see how reforms perhaps don't work and can't be the true pathway forward for meaningful change because they don't necessarily address mindset and cultural change and therefore don't address the root causes of violence, right? I'd love to ask you what you think true safety means. And are there countries out there that are safer than ours in your estimation? So true safety, you know, as I mentioned, really comes from having your basic needs met. We can not make it overly complicated and just say, what factors, what conditions exist in communities that currently have a high level of safety? So in other words, middle class, upper middle class, and wealthy communities, why are they safer? Well, clearly basic needs are being met. Living wage jobs, stable housing, cleaner environment, good education, healthy food, and so on. So when we think about safety, why do we not tie it to those factors that we know are proven over and over, not just by common sense and looking at these communities that exist right next door to communities that are suffering, but also proven through data. But in the United States, we've sort of created this false narrative that more policing and more incarceration brings safety. And it's just not true. There's so many practical considerations and therefore solutions that this work brings to the surface. And yet, so many people think of the work that you are doing as idealistic, but unrealistic work. What should our listeners say to critics who say, you know what, this is all well and good in theory, but basically impossible to achieve you know, true safety without a robust police force. I would say to that, look at the current situation. You know, the definition of insanity is to continue the same approach over and over and expect a different result. And as I said earlier, making tweaks to police policy and expecting drastically different outcomes is just not going to be the case. We have to look at the current situation as the outcome of a strategy that has been tried for decades and just hasn't worked. And reimagining um, and asking what are the root causes of crime and violence is actually hyper-practical. It, it grounds us in data. It grounds us in clear evidence of what works, such as economic opportunity, living wage jobs, versus relying on an idea that if we would just police more, if we would just punish and arrest more people and put more people in jail and have more police presence on the street, that that would create a different outcome, despite the fact that the data and all research generally shows otherwise. So to the people that say reimagining just isn't realistic, I understand that. I understand why it's, it's hard for people to see something in a different way. It's been this way in our country for centuries. But I think the evidence is right in front of us. And I think, for example, when we talk about uh, what is the right way to respond to someone having a mental health crisis? Is it to send an armed police officer or is it to send a crisis counselor and an EMT who can actually de-escalate the situation and give the person that the care that they need and then refer them on to a continuum of care? 
So I think those are the kind of questions we have to ask ourselves. Does it require a gun and a badge to give someone a speeding ticket or to reprimand someone who went through a stop sign? Do we need to send police into homeless encampments to enforce um, cleanup crews being able to do their jobs? When you start to actually break it down, I think people see the impracticality of having police do all of these different jobs. And by the way, in defensive police, they don't want to be doing these jobs. That's not what they signed up for. You know, friends of mine that are police say, hey, we've been asked to take on all of these societal failures from dealing with substance abuse, from dealing with domestic violence, to dealing with homelessness, and so on and so on, and truancy, police in schools, right? Enforcing and policing children. This is, this is a sort of mission creep that has gotten totally out of control. And I think we as Americans just sort of sat back and let it, let it happen. But police themselves would rather be fighting violent crime. They would rather narrow their mission. Of course, in order to do that, we need to bring on the appropriate professionals who are trained to deal with things like mental health crises. But that requires funding. So if police want to no longer do these duties, they have to accept that we need to redirect a certain amount of funding in order to make that switch. But again, this is, this is hyper-practical. So part of what you're saying is that we need to tailor our responses and solutions to better match the real problems and challenges that our communities face. Um, and I, I couldn't agree more. I imagine that such uh, appropriate responses would be a relief to communities and, as you say, even to the police who are ill-equipped to address some of the problems like mental health issues. Can you speak a little bit about the kind of mythology that communities have absorbed and that we, the public, continue to perpetuate when it comes to policing? Yeah, I think this is this is so key and something that I'm particularly um, really dedicated to speaking about because it's something that I rarely hear addressed in you know, popular media or even everyday conversation because it's sign of a taboo topic to talk about this blind reverence for law and order in this country that I feel centers around three myths. And let me just first say, I think, I think that what a lot of folks are looking for is a way to think and talk about radically changing policing in a way that doesn't inevitably involve, uh, devolve into a circular Blue Lives Matter type of argument. Um, and so I think it helps with um, addressing, to start with addressing three major myths um, and then offering proven alternative approaches to policing and new solutions. So the first myth is that police are effective at solving crime and in particular violent crime. So clearance rate data you know, the FBI has this uniform crime reporting um, database that requires um, police forces across the country to report, shows that clearance rates are incredibly low. So, for example, in a place like Oakland, the homicide clearance rate's below 50%. Property crime clearance rate's below 5%. Sexual assault's below 15%. So this, this sort of police are these incredible crime fighters and do this sexy work that you see in popular media and on TV and in movies is just not true. And if we were to hold other government employees, which police are accountable to the same sort of outcomes and performance, police would be getting an F right now in the vast majority of these, these areas of work. And again, despite getting the lion's share of local government budgets. The second myth 
is that there's this widespread perception um, in the American public, and particularly within law enforcement, that officers are more threatened, more endangered, and more often assaulted, and more often killed than the reality, as shown by extensive data. So this myth of police being in imminent danger, first let me be clear, like psychologically, Policing can be a very demanding and stressful job, especially in urban areas. But the reality is very few cops are killed on the line of duty. Between 2006 and 2015, 49 police were feloniously killed per year, which means they were attacked and killed in the entire United States. Now that's 49 too many, but in terms of the perception that police are in imminent danger of being attacked and killed, policing is not even the top 20 most dangerous jobs. And I know that's taboo to say, but it's just a fact. So the reason I bring this up is not to in any way demean or diminish the job that police do, which as I said, is incredibly stressful and difficult, but it's to say that the facts don't justify the perception of danger that police personally face. And more importantly, that the preemptive fatal force that police now habitually use when they any sense of danger is perceived, this idea of putting their own self-preservation above all else, it really flies in the face of their sworn duty to protect and serve the public their primary job to guard and make the community safe, right? So I think that myth of the danger of the job really needs to be, really needs to be addressed. And, and we'd love to share some examples of that as well. Um, but first, let me just quickly say the third myth is just how police spend their time. Uh, if you watch TV and popular media in this country, you would assume police are out there fighting crime and doing these really fascinating, sexy investigations. But the truth is, only 4% of 911 calls relate to violent crime. So let me just say that the vast majority of what police do on the day-to-day -day basis is dealing with low-level issues from homeless person sleeping in a doorway, abandoned auto, noise complaints, and things of, uh, things of that nature. Did you wanna share some examples? Yeah, I just quickly say, because I know it's on a lot of people's mind right now, when I, and when I bring up this idea of police feeling they're in imminent danger, I want folks to understand what I'm talking about here. Dante Wright, the young man, or some might say kid, who was, who was recently killed um, right outside of Minneapolis, he gets pulled over uh, for a routine traffic stop. Uh, a struggle ensues, he's unarmed. He starts to struggle and wriggle and try to get away. And the very first instinct of the police officer is to pull out a weapon. Now, of course, it's claimed that a gun was accidentally pulled instead of a taser. But the point is, why is your first instinct as a cop when this unarmed kid is wriggling out and trying to get away to pull out a weapon, right? That, that's, that brings us back to this just totally distorted notion that police have that they're in constant imminent danger and that the number one priority is their own self-preservation rather than protecting the public at large, including Dante. And one more thing on the sort of myth about policing and lives being in imminent danger and being attacked and killed by, by someone in the public. There's a statistic that I came across recently that really blew my mind, and that is more police and former police commit suicide every year than are killed in the line of duty, and in particular, feloniously killed. So I think that helps us also start to think about our wounded warriors and the work that we need to do there. It's, it's just absolutely turns on its head 
what's actually the biggest threat to police themselves. I, um, I want to ask you if you feel that Americans are coming around. And what impact, if any, do you think that the widespread protests have had on community attitudes towards calls for systemic change? I do think Americans are coming around, but I also think we have a lot of work to do. And it speaks to the thoughts I just shared about the culture in our country. You know, I think it goes back to the founding of our country and looking at where we are today and drawing a line and saying, how did we end up as this heavily policed, heavily armed society where, quite frankly, people are, are often a fear the other. Right? And policing and public safety reform discussions really tap into a primal side of, of folks where it elicits fear, it elicits anxiety, more than other sort of sectors or, or policy topics. And so I think while on the one hand, Americans every day see on the TV and news, black men in particular being murdered by police, and they see crime and violence in uh, low-income communities of color not getting better, they know that something has gone terribly wrong. There's this hesitance to think that it can be done in any other way. And that's where reimagining comes in. So, I, But I do believe that there's this recognition among the greater public, but we need to do a lot of work to start to shift the way that people think about public safety and policing and to really introduce concepts like a public health-based approach to dealing with substance abuse and mental health crises, um, and even violence, viewing violence as a public health emergency in this country. Mm -hmm. So we can start to shift that narrative and give people new frames and new language and new ways of talking about this issue. That's when I think we'll start to really get traction beyond this current situation where there's this recognition, but almost a, a, a sort of, we don't know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. and, and we're also scared whether it's gonna result in us being less safe in terms of the people who are currently benefiting from the system. It seems to me that maybe it is important in order to get that buy-in and to really change people's mindsets to have viable community source solutions implemented, tried, and, and proven effective. I, I want to therefore applaud the, the work to get community input for the 88 recommendations. Can you tell us a little bit more about those recommendations and uh, perhaps name those that you feel are particularly transformative, both in terms of philosophy and practice? Yeah, it was, a, it was an incredibly democratic process. I was excited about it because it, it sort of goes beyond that you vote and that's your duty. This was hundreds of Oaklanders coming together and volunteering their time over roughly nine months to create an entire vision, a detailed vision, that was informed by both professional expertise and lived experience for how we can radically rebuild from the ground up our public safety system. So it was an amazing experience. And some of the really more salient solutions that came out, which I should say the City Council of Oakland did adopt the recommend, all 88 recommendations and they decided to prioritize 12 for this immediate year ahead. Some of those that, that really stood out as sort of exemplary of what it means to reimagine include, I think I've mentioned before, the model of using a 
crisis counselor and an EMT to respond to someone having a mental health crisis. And that could be, you know, a homeless person. And, and we define mental health crisis really broadly, anyone in crisis. Also, moving police out of traffic enforcement and allowing unarmed civilians to do traffic enforcement. So in the same way, we have unarmed civilians giving parking tickets. The question then becomes, why can't they be doing similar work for people who commit what are relatively minor traffic violations? And I think this is really important because 50% of all interaction that Americans have with police comes through traffic stops, which as we know can go horribly wrong in particular for um, black people. And so the idea here is that we would move those duties to an unarmed civilian agency like the Department of Transportation, who would do that work. And of course, when it comes to, you know, more serious issues like hit and run and um, or sideshows and things like that, police would still be involved. A couple more examples. Uh, restorative justice, building that infrastructure across communities in Oakland, giving communities a ground level up way to address harm and violence, to work through conflict, to sit in circle and really deal with a lot of the lingering issues that create cycles of violence and harm. And for years, we've seen uh, studies of restorative justice that, for example, show if you divert youth out of the criminal justice system using a restorative justice process, the recidivism rate is significantly lower than if you send them to juvenile detention. So that's another recommendation. A couple last ones are decriminalization. We really looked at how can we decriminalize um, things like uh, homelessness, substance abuse, and even sex work, and take a public health-based approach that focuses on treatment rather than criminalization. And then violence interrupters. There's a program in Richmond, California called Advanced Peace that hires and pays men who have been involved with violence in the past, likely have been incarcerated, have them coming back into the community to work in proactive ways with young men who are currently at risk of or involved with violence and to sort of help to work them out of that, that space. And they bring major credibility, these folks that are hired, these violence interrupters, because they're from the community and they know it and they have the trust. So these are what we call community-based solutions, solutions that not only sound good and look good, but are proven through data to work. And we need to be investing in these type of solutions. And that's what the task force has lifted up among a lot of other recommendations that, that address the structural factors, including police unions and their power. Which is um, a, a big issue. It, it seems like many of the solutions are grounded in the need to have first responders who are truly empathetic, who understand, who are connected, who have been there, who are perhaps from frontline community spaces and uh, who don't have a punitive uh, approach to this work and are not seeking um, retribution, but who are uh, really wanting to move forward more harmoniously um, as beloved community. And it sounds to me like many of those recommendations could be applied as scaffolded, adapted, adjusted 
for innumerable communities, including here in Hawaii, um, where we are sitting at the moment. Um, could you speak a little bit to the listeners here about what they could or should be doing to affect positive change around policing practices in their own spaces? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think it starts with understanding that police reform and public safety reform, first and foremost, is hyper-local. I think um, a lot of people are surprised to learn that not only the police budget, but the union contract that governs police discipline and, and all sorts of other matters relating to police use of force and policies and, and hiring and so forth, that's all in the hands of your city council and your mayor, right? I, I, I think people are surprised. They, they assume the federal government and the state legislature and governor play a more prominent role than they do. But vast majority of what really matters day to day with policing and its outcome, that's, that's coming from the decisions and the leadership at the local level. So it's important to engage your city council members, engage your mayor, and really demand changes Right, and not only demand changes, put forward what you believe are the positive ways to change the situation versus just saying what you don't want. So I think it's important first and foremost for people to engage that way. And it's not to say that the state and federal government don't matter, you know, labor laws and stuff like that are important at the state level, so you need to engage there. But get involved locally, understand how policing reform works and understand that you have a stake in everybody being safe in your community. If you happen to be currently benefiting from the system, that's still not the, that's not an excuse to not get involved. It seems like the communities that have suffered the most from the violence uh, of the present and past are also going to need to begin healing from from trauma. How do we lift up these uh, frontline communities uh, and voices and and have embodied social justice approach that will enable people to rediscover a sense of optimism and hope and, and move to post-traumatic growth? You know, I think that's so key when we look at the accumulation of harm and, and trauma that has occurred over those, these last centuries in our country. You know, what we heard uh, repeatedly, in particular from the most impacted communities in Oakland and black communities in particular, was moving forward the importance of restorative economics, number one, which means making investments in communities that will lift them up. The idea that communities that have suffered immensely from poverty and, and dislocation and marginalization can find their dignity through living wage jobs, through stable housing, through fresh food, that nourishes not only the body, but the mind through restorative justice, which can bring people together in circle to address the harms that have been done in the community proper, but also across communities. So I think it really starts with tangible investment, not to turn this into a discussion of economics, but a major driver of what has happened in communities of color and, and the crime and violence that has ensued was disinvestment, right? We rarely see communities where people have living wage jobs and stable housing dealing with issues of crime and violence. So I think it's important that when we talk about healing, we don't just do it only through words, but through action. And that action means massive investment 
in communities, lifting people up through economic opportunity. Thank you. And and what you're saying ultimately is that we really need to think of safety as synonymous with broad wellness. And uh, I appreciate so much all of your work towards those ends and the legacy that you are building with the Oakland community and others for the inspiration. We want to also thank the people of Oakland and we want to wish uh, Oakland so much luck and aloha knowing that the work that's being done there is going to be so important and instructive to the entire nation. If you wouldn't mind offering some closing remarks then, Liam, about what it is that makes you feel like this is really possible, that we can change things and wash our eyes and shift our culture. You know, growing up in a Native American community, I've always been of the, of the mind, body, and spirit that we're, we're all interconnected and that there is a collective trauma in this country that I think uh, everybody has a desire to transform out of. Whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, you realize that the current system isn't working. And I think that what makes me confident that we're going to continue to transform out of this is a process like we carried out in Oakland. It was just incredible to see people from all different backgrounds coming together with all these practical ideas that are not pie in the sky. They absolutely will work. And knowing that the wisdom of communities is still prime. I think that was the outcome of, of that process, that you bring people together who have to live this day to day and you're going to have the right solutions onto the table. In addition to the fact that just the fortunate opportunity I've had to work in other countries around the world and to see other systems work and to see other approaches, to see the fact that uh, police in most democratic countries don't carry guns. They have specialized units that carry guns and respond only to violent crime. To see that there are other ways of doing things, that really brings me not only hope, but assurance that we can do this, that we can change. And, and again, I think it starts with a shift in culture and people recognizing that the history of our country has resulted in over-policing, has resulted in this situation we have, and that it's time to take stock of that and to move forward with a new vision for the country that we want to be. Thank you, Liam. Thank you so much. This is a complicated and emotional issue, and we must approach it with care and respect for all involved, as well as the knowledge that there's a lot of work ahead. The thing is that we too often go to what is most familiar, and we do things the way they've always been done. And so I'd like to encourage you listeners to please think and see anew and challenge yourselves to consider real progress on policing and public safety as requiring fundamental transformation as opposed to merely reform. Clearly, policing and public safety require both policy changes and cultural shifts. So today, whether or not you agree with the task force solutions that Liam shared, my hope is that you feel energized about contemplating what's in your own backyard and think about how you can engage your energies and networks in ways that more genuinely and deeply create safety. 
Be expansive in your thinking. Try new things. Open up to the discomfort of courageous conversations with others. Center voices that haven't been heard and teach others. Join me for future conversations with really thoughtful, creative people who are helping us to wash our eyes and nourish a sense of possibility around difficult social challenges. Thank you so much for listening. Please share and stay in the conversation.